What's up, boys, girls, and non-binary? You are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast devoted to an obsessive study of horror films, subgenre by subgenre. We are still just beginning the first round of a tournament devoted to slasher movies, and tonight we have six flicks squaring off in head-to-head matchups. Three will be voted off the island, and three will triumphantly march on to face stiffer competition in the next round. I am your host, John Evans, and I am joined by two men who are always stiff for horror movies, screenwriter Vic Wheat and producer Rich Eckersley. Gentlemen, I hope you are ready to talk at length about masked maniacs, campfire tales, Ahabs, and senseless acts of shocking brutality. Just another night at the office for this podcast. Vic, what's on your mind tonight, buddy? Well, John, I'm I'm approaching another birthday, and was was just thinking that it's, I'm, I feel blessed that it doesn't take me a pill to get stiff for uh, for a discussion about slasher films anymore. Uh, just a just a nice cold beer uh, <laughs> and staring at, at the two of your your beautiful faces uh, is all it takes to get to get my engine red. Ah, <laughs> uh, that that is a, a skosh alarming there, Vic. But, but thank you, and I'm really glad that we are all seeing each other via the magic of Skype right now. And keep your hands on the table there, buddy. Rich, how are you, man? No promises, John. <laughs> Vic, I'm going to go the other way. I'm hard for the masks, you know? Like, I'm, I'm in it for the masks. Like, put on a mask, I don't want to see any faces. I want people hiding in the shadows, only revealing themselves once in a movie. I like the mystery. You've called into the right show, Rich, because we got we've got some serious high quality masks tonight. Also, I look forward to your wife calling me and saying, "Why is Rich asking me to wear this bird mask?" <laughs> Honey, this owl mask yeah. really is not good for my <laughs> neck. <laughs> Just do this, me, okay? Just keep throwing feathers in the air. <laughs> Oh, the art director of Stage Fright could not uh, go wrong if if more feathers were launched in any given scene. It just makes it all better. But we'll get there. That's that's not our first film to talk about. We're uh, focusing initially in a matchup of the Dark Horse category. And if you didn't listen to last week's show... Or you just want a reminder, Dark Horse is the miscellaneous category. It's the home of the wild childs, the imports, the mold breakers and oddballs that just might outshine more pedigreed films. And we are in that regional, so to speak, in the lingo of March Madness. And we have a number one seed squaring off against a 16 seed. This would be a huge upset if... One of these films loses, and uh, I'm I'm not totally sure, honestly, about the outcome because Vic is not a huge fan of the number one seed. Without further ado, let me introduce that movie. Of course, it is Hot Tension or High Tension. My French pronunciation isn't the best, but I do know the film is directed by Alexandra Aha. 2003, it was released. It stars Cécile de France. My Wen in, in the spirit of Aquafina or Cher, and Philippe Nahan. The logline is as such. 
Best friends, Marie and Alexia, decide to spend a quiet weekend at Alexia's parents' secluded farmhouse. But on the night of their arrival, the girl's idyllic getaway turns into an endless night of horror. The film was released in the United Kingdom as Switchblade Romance, which does feel like a different movie entirely to me. Possibly a spoiler. It kicked off the new French extremity movement. It would be followed by films such as Calvaire, Shaitan, Frontiers, and Inside, as well as, of course, Martyrs. Some would agree at least a couple of those movies are better than this one, but that's a conversation for another time, and I, for one, would not immediately agree. High Tension was picked up by Lionsgate after a successful screening at the Midnight Madness section of the 2003 Toronto International Film Festival. It was then redubbed in English, re-edited, and it thus secured an R rating. Lionsgate spent $14 million to open it in wide release in the U.S. a couple years later, 2005, but it only grossed $3.6 million at the box office. Lionsgate later released the original cut on Blu-ray and DVD. All of the gore effects in this movie were created by the Italian horror makeup artist Giannetto Di Rossi, a favorite of the late great horror maestro Lucio Fulci. And I think that the effort to release this movie in the U.S. flopped because it watered down the movie. I saw both cuts in the theater. I was significantly less impressed by the dubbed R version. I don't know if that hurt the movie's reception and word of mouth with the general public or if there were other reasons why the movie didn't resonate with American audiences. I don't know. But in my opinion, this movie would have had serious notoriety value if they'd left it alone and... What they did with it definitely diminished the impact of the film. It revolves around a home invasion. And I think when we're looking at things that make the movie notable, this has to be Zeus in the pantheon of most intense, disturbing, and vicious home invasions ever put to film. Even though it's a lot more brief than, say, funny games, it's still an extended sequence and pretty fucking rough. The Village Voices' Mark Holcomb wrote that the film is a pastiche of 70s American slasher flicks that seemingly stands to add to the worldwide glut of Irono-nostalgic sequels, remakes, and retreads. And he added that it's a gratifyingly gory, doggedly intellectual decon, I guess deconstruction, of the likes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and Duel. Also notable, uh, I've never read Dean Kuntz's Intensity, but apparently there are sufficient parallels that when Kuntz was asked why he didn't file a lawsuit against the filmmakers, the author answered that he would not sue because he found the film so puerile, so disgusting, so intellectually bankrupt that he didn't want the association with it that would inevitably come if he pursued an action against the filmmaker. You know what, folks? To me, that sounds like the description of a pretty good horror movie. One last thing I will point out, the Muse song Newborn is featured in this film, and it absolutely stopped me in my tracks when I first saw this movie. That reaction foreshadowed my love of their later release, Knights of Sidonia, which is hands down one of my favorite songs of all time, and favorite videos, I might add. Before we get into a little battle royale discussion, let's go right on to Blood Rage. Let's stack them up face to face. Rich, tell us about Blood Rage. Blood Rage, which... For those of you listening, which I guess is everyone, I'm saying in air quotes because it was released theatrically under the title Nightmare at Shadow Woods, which is really confusing because the opening credits actually title the movie as being called Slasher, 
So we're up to three titles now, and you haven't even gotten into the film. I will say Slashers introduced a cool, broken font. They're all pretty accurate titles. What's incredible is that none of the titles are Thanksgiving-themed, which is significant, because how did they miss the boat on the holiday horror fad? Right. When this is the only like significant Thanksgiving horror film I can even think of, at least in terms of that time period. For sure. Not counting the never actually made, never existed uh, Eli Roth's uh, Thanksgiving, which I which I also deeply love, just as a trailer. So, and anyways, there is one, thanks there is thanks killing, which I have not seen, but it's much later. Thank, yeah, thanks killing mm-hmm. was uh, I think in the last like ten years. If yeah. I'm correct. Yeah. Anyway, so Blood Rage, Nightmare at Shadow Woods, Slasher, whatever this thing is, it was released in 1987. It was filmed in '83, so it took four years to get to the screen. Directed by John Grismer, can't say really went on to do anything of of note. The notable cast here, I think, is Mark Soper, who had a little bit of a, a career later on in this one. He plays a dual role as twin brothers. And Louise Lasser appears as his mother, Maddie, in a performance that is just straight out of the David Lynch multiverse. <laughs> well, this thing opens at a drive-in movie. There's two young twin brothers, Todd and Terry. They escape their mother making out with a guy only to witness a couple having sex. Uh, Terry, one of the, the boys, ends up killing the guy with a hatchet and pins it on Todd. Years later, we catch up on Thanksgiving with the mother, Maddie, and Terry, now in his 20s, learn that Todd has escaped the asylum and is believed to be stalking and killing people around a tennis court and a swimming pool and a nature trail. It's an apartment complex. The whole <laughs> thing is just a bunch of murders in an apartment complex. I'd never heard of this movie before by any of its three titles. I did go through the critic reviews, although most of them came much after the fact. And generally, it seems to be kind of relegated as just part of the flotsam and the glut of 80s slasher movies. Uh, I will say that there were a few in the the notable reviews that I saw were people that that recognized that at least this movie was sort of making a turn towards uh, comedy and an ability to, to laugh at itself, which I think is notable for the year that it came out. For me, this was a real journey watching this movie for the first time. You know, it, it opens with this like sort of very minor twist on the Halloween traumatic killer kid opening. But the gore immediately announces itself as this balls to the wall spirit Halloween store level grindhouse gore. <laughs> followed, it's followed by a dialogue scene in which the characters are talking, but the dialogue is dropped out and then it's steamrolled by voiceover for like two minutes. This is bizarre filmmaking. And by the time you get to the dinner scene where Terry is intimidating his mom's new boyfriend with the with cutting the turkey up, um, followed by someone announcing Terry's insane brother is here. I realize that this thing is totally bizarro, like tongue in cheek comedy. If this movie got released today, we would file it under meta. But stuck in time as it is, it becomes a dumber version of what I could see us getting if the Coen brothers were to direct an homage of Herschel Gordon Lewis. The gore is gonzo, but slapstick. The acting over the top with this quality where people sound surprised at the same time, no matter what they're talking about. The entire script is a series of awkward, flubbed sexual passes. There's a live (laughs) baby who's a character being watched by a character named Baby. The kills are so fast and furious, and the music is fantastic. It would seem derivative if it weren't for the fact that Carpenter and Marauder 
were contemporaries at the time. <laughs> I actually ended up loving this movie, and I thought it was garbage from from the moment I started. I would say this thing is drive-in trash, shot like a blood-spattered soap opera, and acted out like a slapstick blue velvet. This is my standard bearer for Thanksgiving horror moving forward. <laughs> wow. Rich, I think you captured the, the wild magic of this film very aptly there. You mentioned the, the Thanksgiving meal scene, and it reminded me that watching this movie, I felt like this was what the 80s were really like in terms of fashion and decor and furniture and what it actually looked like to be in a room owned by normal people. Like most people that didn't live in the 80s, when they look at 80 movie, 80s movies, they're probably watching like Ridley Scott and various or Tony Scott or these like the most stylish, idealized versions of the 80s few actual 80s movies had such a low budget that they actually showed the couch that you would buy and and have in your middle class home in the 80s but this movie has that this movie has the tchotchkes and it feels like it really was how uh, an accurate picture of what life was like and even 80s movies don't tend to capture that because they were too aspirational and there are directors and production designers and costumers and prop masters gave you an actually an, an inaccurate picture of the cheesy glory of the 80s. This movie seems pretty it's pretty clear to me that someone just had access to a apartment complex. Yes. Like someone was like the super of their apartment complex <laughs> and had like a friend who wanted to make a movie. Like this was just an opera, someone cashing in on an opportunity. So true. The IMDB tagline, I don't know. I mean, I assume this is legitimate. The tagline that this movie came out with was not all the evil is on Elm street. And I also want to note that the line from the film, this isn't exactly garbage day from, uh, <laughs> from Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. But this line is semi-famous and somewhat meme-worthy. It's not cranberry sauce. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I believe he says more than once. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned Louise Lasser is the lead in this. She was famous for Woody Allen movies and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I certainly knew her name going into the movie. I think she gives a hell of a performance in the vein of Piper Laurie in Carrie, which, Vic, I'm sorry, is definitely a horror movie. It's a discussion for another time, John, but we'll get there. <laughs> I can see that. I, you know, she honestly, like, frequently reminded me of, of uh, Frances McDormand, like, like Blood Simple or Fargo mm -hmm. Frances McDormand. Totally see that. She's doing the, the female equivalent of the guy in Tourist Trap. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up because this movie reminds me of Tourist Trap, which we, of course, talked about in our last episode. Kind of like Tourist Trap, it, it struck me as just being so gonzo, so unfettered by classical Hollywood sensibilities that the movie becomes unique. And thus, it really does stand out from the crowd of these stock and slash studio movies of its time or even the later years. What impressed me about this movie is not its graceful filmmaking, classic writing, classical, classy writing, or thematic heft. It's just 
so big and melodramatic. And I'm thinking about the ending of this movie in the apartment complex pool, for example. It just, it demands that you remember it. I I know it's not an objectively great movie by any standard. It's no real contender for greatest slasher movie ever made. But I think it's definitely worthy of discussion. Well, I wonder if we're going to find a a trope here. These films had such small budgets, they would try and get, it seems, sort of one vague name, you know, usually an older actor that maybe hadn't worked in a while. And so you have these actors just, just going for broke. They haven't had a job in a while. This is the most screen time they've had. And like, they're just, they're chewing the scenery for all it's worth. Because what it makes me think of is is Donald Pleasance in Halloween, who I feel like is kind of doing a similar thing. Uh, He's, you know, he's, I think, a little bit better than Chuck Connor or Louise Lasser. But I'm just wondering as we go through these, that's something I'm going to keep an eye on is how many of these movies have one of these older actors just just go into town on these these scripts. Yeah, where it's like a paycheck and they would love to be, you know, in Hamlet or something, but they're like, fuck, you know, my car just broke down. Honestly, that reminds me in uh, Friday the 13th Part 1. I just watched the movies that made us about uh, Friday the 13th Part 1, and Beverly Palmer had no interest in being this movie, but her car had just broken down, and it was expensive. So she's like, all right, I guess I, I need it. I need the paycheck. And that's why she's Pamela Voorhees. But they are classically trained, experienced actors, and they seize every opportunity they have, and they make the most of it. And sometimes, yeah, it results in some striking performances in these really big, lurid, melodramatic roles. Obviously, we need to turn our attention to to high tension here at some point, but uh, hot tension. (laughs) Tension? This movie is... Tension. Yeah, there you go. Um, this movie is another example of what I've already talked about before, which is this 80s obsession with psychology and madness. Once again, we have a, a, a psychiatrist as a primary character. Right. We have this weird psychosexual thing that Terry has with his mother where her engaging in any sort of sexual activity seems to set off his violent rages. Very clearly, um, that's the catalyst for everything he does, right? Yeah. Now there's no now there's no reason for it. It's not very well thought out. Somebody just said mommy issues and then they and then they went with that. It's a very facile trigger for his violent behavior. It is, but I think it's one of those things we're going to see come up over and over again. Uh, and boy, the the what they did to that poor psychiatrist was yeah, was something. She gets cut in what half or something, was, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a streak of kills in this thing where they're happening like every 90 seconds. And like that, that thing with the psychologist is literally torn in half. And I don't, if, if memory serves, you don't even see the kill. You just like no. find her, right? Yeah. Somebody finds her. Yeah, exactly. She's the producer of the, the movie, by the way, uh, playing, That's right. playing the doctor. And she was a, a somewhat prolific producer of like horror films around that era and like a former actress um, who like ended up with the role because whoever they had cast like didn't show up on the day. Yeah, that makes sense. But of all the zero budget slasher movies, you know, so many of them like fail to really register as being stylistically or visually memorable. And and this movie absolutely does. As much as it's made for a shoestring with not the best effects or cinematography or anything, 
you know, like there's a lot of kind of memorable images, like the the head hanging outside the door, for example, later on. Mm-hmm. This movie viscerally delivers the goods. And even though, yeah, it, it may not be really psychologically deep, at least it's playing with some interesting ideas for what moves the characters. But speaking of crazy psychological things driving the characters, we should we should talk about hot tension. <laughs> I was John. I was just going to say that you could. I would. I would make the case that the psychology in Blood Rages is, is really better thought out and executed than the psychology in Ouch. high tension. And look, I'm not saying hot tension anymore. Okay, it's high tension. That's just what That's I'm going to say. That's fair. <laughs> with apologies to to the French. <laughs> I just think, Vic, I know you loathe this movie on on some level, and I think a lot of it comes down to, as you've referred to in the past, the last 10 minutes. But I, I think it's a breath of fresh air from those poorly paced, awkwardly filmed, and ineptly produced slashers of the early days of the subgenre, including Blood Rage. I mean, just by definition of craft. It's just so dark, so intense, so no punches pulled, Katie barred the door, that it just outdoes so many of those newer, slicker, and more narratively successful and better produced slashers of the modern days of the subgenre. That is kind of the best of both worlds, right? It's hard to get this kind of style, technical mastery, and flesh-splitting edge in the same movie, at least in this particular tournament of films. I love the bravura filmmaking that AHA brings to the table here. To this day, I am exhilarated and horrified by this film. Every time I watch it, as a movie movie, I think High Tension is a cut above 90% of its competition here. I'm sorry, but a plot twist that may or may not land is not enough to entirely undermine that effect for me. Look, I will admit, uh, and I won't even say reluctantly, okay? Because it's not, I mean, I I would, would not say that I loathe this movie. But what I will say is it's just it's going to be such a tap dance around this. In the first viewing, I was really blown away. And in each subsequent viewing, it has lost every bit of tension, uh, every bit of suspense. All those things have gone away. And I find myself watching it, trying to figure out how any of it makes sense. And the answer is that it doesn't. And look, that's not a deal breaker, right? Like I don't I don't demand complete narrative cohesion, but it's such a conscious decision to do it that way. I I, I don't know. It just it's it it boggles my mind as a as a writer. Watching it this this most recent time for this podcast was painful. I was I just I was watching it aghast at how nonsensical it is. Uh, on repeated viewings. Huh, that's a it's very a, strong. That's a very strong reaction. If you came to this podcast looking for things that make sense, you're listening to the wrong that, show. Yeah, <laughs> turn back now. I, I'm really interested to see, Rich. Where do you land on this? I'd say I, I fall a little closer to, to your camp, John. I'm not. I am not as emphatic about this film as you are, but I do like it, and I actually think you know without getting into the, to the specifics like I, I know that we talked to with this about Vic before and I was not like parsing it out scene by scene but I did know the ending going into this viewing and it actually didn't bother me that much I, I feel like you could look at every scene and it would be like is this logical is there really a story like motivating this like no but like can I just sort of accept it on face value for how they're presenting it 
I can get away with that. And I'm with you. You have to just sort of like enjoy the ride with this film. And I think that the ride is what it does well. My summary of the, of what you can say is great about this movie is that this movie lives up to its title, which is more than I can say for many of the films in this competition. I mean, it is a, I don't, I don't know how you found it to be like such a tedious bore going back into it, Vic, because I did feel like it's a pretty compelling, like going from dire circumstance to dire circumstance, the gross, like NC 17 earning, gore and bizarre sexual like head fornication like that stuff is like pretty chilling and not anything i can really think of like seeing before or or since um you know stylistically like it it, it's aged a a tiny bit like the i was thinking that it actually reminds me a little bit of run lola run if anyone remembers that in the late 90s it had like a little bit of that energy to it where it's like just always keep like this thing moving forward like down to like the speeding camera um you know like there's some some kind of like dated cinematography uh tricks but like i i love the killer i think the killer is is fantastic i think he's maybe the best character and actor in the film and like this idea of just having this sort of grubby, schlubby old man who's just inexplicably like tearing these people apart is like he's very unsettling for a guy who's not wearing a mask and is only like sometimes even carrying around a, a weapon. You know, it has this very like crunchy sense of gore um, that I feel like was fresh, at least at the at the time, like they really brought the viscera back. To, uh, to, to go around this time in, in filmmaking. There was a lot to appreciate from a horror point of view. There, there's something about it where it's like, I, it wasn't like a, a super like, it wasn't a very like magical watch. Like, I guess I don't get a lot of charisma from the film. And that's where like, maybe I, I, I side with Vic a little more. I didn't like any of the characters. I actually found like the love triangle. I, I don't know what you'd call that. The love story in this thing that, that kind of drives this movie like I never really buy, uh, and I certainly don't buy it as like a motivator of the of whoa, the third whoa, whoa, act. Whoa, 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 whoa. Careful, careful, careful. That's not. I would not. I would not call that. A, That's a, not a spoiler. All right, sorry. John, if uh, anyone's going to go too far in this conversation, it's going to be me. All right, <laughs> put your hand on your fucking buzzer. You were vague enough. I, I'm wrong. Go ahead. I know. Holy shit! Can we get that on the loop? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sample that. All right, go ahead. Anyway, uh, no, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've kind of made a point. I don't know. I've, I have like a, a, a little bit of ambivalence about this film, but I did find it to be a pretty good, actually a pretty good watch. It was fun going back to revisiting it. I would say I actually, I maybe liked it a little bit less than I expected to. I was very affected by it the first time I saw it. And this time I was like, well, that was good. Um, but, you know, it's also like a, how old is this film? 2002. Three, two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. So you're basically talking about like a twenty year old movie. Like that's yeah. that's to be expected. Feels like I mean, yesterday I, that I saw this. <laughs> the fact that the first ninety percent of it is well made and does have this kind of weird European approach to a seventies grindhouse movie, it gives it sort of an interesting twist. And I and I like all that stuff. I actually think Cecile de France gives a a really 
a credible performance in the in the lead, a really physical performance. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that I like about it, but that just makes the ending so much more devastating. Like it just makes the 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 failure to stick the landing ripple even harder across the the rest of it. So it's hard to talk about in detail, and uh, I will I will just go ahead and and spoil one ending by saying that I will be voting for this over Blood Rage, but I do look forward to uh, being able to have some some deeper spoilerific conversations about it. By the way, on my bootleg, it's not bootleg, but it's a like region three DVD of this movie. As I was trying to obtain the original uncut version, the hot tension version, there's a really lo-fi interview with Cecile de France where like she's just sitting in somebody's house with Christmas lights behind her and cut rate DVD feature production values. And she's just talking about this movie and her experience acting in it. And the biggest takeaway, I mean, there's a lot of little interesting things, but I was just stunned at how young and healthy and fresh faced she looks much, much younger, healthier, and more fresh-faced than the characterization that she has in the film. And of course, the interview is later, uh, not much later, but, and it just reminded me how concerted the filmmaker's efforts were in her own to make her as lean and raggedy and not traditionally healthy, beautiful, sexy as, as she could be. It was an not a glamorized performance. She was trying to embody a character. And when in reality, she was, you know, a much more, for lack of a better term, luscious, full bodied. She said she lost a lot of weight and like she was trying to be not necessarily her best self for this movie. And and I think it aged her. And I think it was, it was a, it was a very strong choice and i was just blown away at like she was in reality this happy-go-lucky young ingenue because that's not what you get from the film i just that's very random but i i thought i would i would throw it out here back to what rich said really quickly i think this dovetails on one of his comments for me this movie is a turbocharged muscle car of a slasher movie it's long on horror horsepower and as unpretentious as a dodge viper even if the vehicle is of European manufacture. I think a good percentage of this movie is burned in my brain forever, and that's a big deal for me. And I can't defend the ending. I'll try anyway, without spoilers, of course, because in this round there are no spoilers. I have seen this movie at least three times, probably four, and I've had to reconcile that ending with what precedes it every time since the first viewing, Vic, as you have. But we have a different way of looking at it. There's one for me, one big thing I can't get past. It involves the killer's mode of transportation, but I think I do have an explanation for that. I'm not saying I'm totally on board with it, but in that interpretation, it kind of works, mostly. We'll get into the nitty-gritty in future episodes. I'll leave it with this classic quote from Roger Ebert's review, in which he said, The film has a plot hole that is not only large enough to drive a truck through, but in fact does have a truck driven right through it, (laughs) which is pretty good. All right. Well, Vic cast his vote. My vote is cast. It's high tension. Rich, where were you going with your vote? 
I, I I was already wavering. I'm glad that Vic gave the gave the spoiler because honestly, like I am gonna just throw a vote to Slasher. I mean, Nightmare at Shadow Woods. I mean, <laughs> um, I really like this movie. I felt like this was another one of those movies that I missed when I was growing up and like really getting into this genre. And this was just like such a a treasure to find. Like if you really love this genre, like don't sleep on this film if you haven't seen it. I'm so glad you're saying that. And I discovered it because Joe Bob Briggs had it, featured it on his Thanksgiving special a year or two ago. And it was not on my radar at all until then. And I agree. It is a gem. It is something. It kind of reminds me when we did, though it made it through more rounds than this, Amityville, where I'm like, we could do a show about this movie. Just put it through the paces Um, because it does deserve it. Blood Rage, I mean. Vic, unless you have anything else to say, it's time. I do. I do. I have one more thing to say. Spoiler alert. The twist at the end is that Kevin Spacey is really Kaiser Soze. <laughs> That's it. And, and a sexual predator. <laughs> oh, we knew that. <laughs> okay, just a short episode this time as we strive to get you one every week, which is apparently best practices for podcasts. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Next time, you get the last two matchups of the evening, and that would be The Burning versus Stage Fright and Behind the Mask versus Final Girls. For now, adios. Adios.